It is a privilege to be with you this evening and have the joy of opening the Word of God with you. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Zephaniah chapter 1. Zephaniah chapter 1. And we're going to start by just reading a few verses from chapter 1. We'll read the rest of it as we go along. But just to set the stage and the tone a little bit for tonight's message. Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 1. The word of Yahweh, which came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will completely end all things from the face of the ground, declares Yahweh. I will end man and beast. I will end the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the ruins along with the wicked. And I will cut off man from the face of the, from the, face of the ground, declares Yahweh. Jump down to verse 18. As you can see how it continues. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the fury of Yahweh. And all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy. For he will make a complete destruction, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. Let's ask the Lord for help. Father, as we come to this text and we see a description of your wrath against sin, we are grateful that you made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Thank you that Christ took the wrath that we deserve. We pray that you would help us grow in our thankfulness and our gratitude to you tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've come tonight looking to hear a message of hope, I'm afraid I have bad news for you. <laughs> the good news is that Zephaniah does not end in chapter 1. There is a chapter 2 and a chapter 3, so I hope you'll come back <laughs> in the next few weeks. You can see how Zephaniah's message of wrath and destruction turns into a message of hope and of salvation. But there is no light in chapter 1 of Zephaniah. There is no peace. Notice in verse 3 of Zephaniah 1, God says he will wipe out in this order man, beast, birds, and fish. That's deliberate. This is a complete reversal, an inversion of creation. On days 5 and 6 of creation, God created in the opposite order. Fish, then birds, then beast, and then man. God is saying he's going to wipe it all clean. In fact, in verse 15 of chapter 1, God says on his day of judgment, he's going to bring back thick darkness upon the earth bringing the creation back to his pre-let-there-be-light status. This whole creation is going to be undone and remade from the ashes. And there's a sense in which it's hard to even wrap our minds around this concept of global judgment. Uh, the greatest judgment the world has ever seen is the global flood, but even the flood preserved the fish and the light. Although the flood is pretty much the closest thing we can compare this to, and, and Zephaniah uses flood-type language. Uh, you'll notice again in verse 3, God says he's going to cut off mankind from the face of the ground. That's exactly what God said in Genesis 6-7 when he said he was going to blot out mankind from the face of the ground. You'll recall there in Genesis chapter 6 that God saw that every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil all the time. And so Yahweh, who is a warrior, 
took out his bow and he drew his arrows and he rained down judgment upon mankind. He wiped out millions of souls from the face of the ground. And after God had unleashed his global judgment upon the world, he took his bow, his weapon of war, and he hung it in the sky, his rainbow, promising that he would never again flood the earth with water. And as humans, our error, our mistake, is that because God is so patient with us and because he has delayed his final judgment for so long, many presume that God has fully drained out his wrath. They surmise that there will be peace forever and nothing could be farther from the truth. Because our God, Yahweh, is a warrior. And though he has hung his bow in the sky, he never relinquished his sword. It is true that his long-range weapon, his bow, hangs in the sky. But that only means that next time he comes in judgment, he's doing it up close and personal. On that day, his feet will stand upon this earth, Zechariah 14, and he will slay all mankind with the fiery word of his mouth. No more water next time he's coming with fire. Peter says it this way. The mockers say, ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. But they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the godly. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will, be pass, will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. In Second Peter chapter 3. say, so, wow, Josiah, this is, this is dark. I mean, this is, this is a tough word. What's, what's the point? Well, Peter's application in 2 Peter 3 is the same of Zephaniah's, and it's this, to think, to consider. Consider what person you ought to be, how you ought to live in light of the wrath to come. Zephaniah says, gather together, think, contemplate, consider. Consider how you ought to live today in light of Yahweh's day. Zephaniah gives us five characteristics of Yahweh's day that we ought to consider. And we'll use that as our outline tonight. Five characteristics of Yahweh's day that we must consider. First, consider what kind of judgment is coming. Consider what kind of judge we'll be judging. Consider what time this judgment will come. Consider what kind of person will be judged. And consider what you can do to escape said judgment. I'll be repeating the points as we go along. But I want to just give you a general idea of the flow of this book. There's three chapters. The first chapter, Yahweh judges Israel. The second chapter, Yahweh destroys the nations. And in the third chapter, Yahweh saves his remnant. God judges Israel, God destroys the nations, and then God saves his remnant. You'll notice in verse 1, that we have the context. We don't know a lot about Zephaniah, except you see he traces his genealogy back four generations, the only prophet who does so. And it ends with Hezekiah, presumably King Hezekiah, which means that Zephaniah is a distant cousin of King Josiah, his king. As far as the chronology during Josiah's reign, we're in the 600s BC. 
It's a really dark time for Judah. Israel, the 10 tribes in the north, have already been exiled by Assyria in 722 BC. And Babylon is on the cusp, right at the edge of exiling Judah. And Judah deserved it. Really dark days in Judah. To give you an idea, Manasseh, Josiah's grandfather, was extraordinarily wicked. Second Chronicles 33 sums up Manasseh's reign like this. Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. That's an amazing statement when you understand the Canaanites. Israel's more wicked than the Canaanites at the time of Manasseh. There's idols everywhere, high places, wickedness. Ammon, Josiah's father, is just as bad. He was so bad that his servants killed him. His reign only lasted two years, which is why Josiah comes to be king at age eight. Now, as many of you know, Josiah is a good king. He finds the law. He institutes many reforms in Judah. But at the end of the day, even though Josiah repented, the nation only reformed the outside of the cup. They never turned to Yahweh from the heart. And so just a few years after Zephaniah, Babylon comes and destroys Jerusalem and exiles Judah. And that's helpful for us because it it helps us to understand that in that sense, Zephaniah is the last word of warning to Judah before its destruction. There's other prophets that prophesy during the destruction, like Jeremiah, But Zephaniah is God's last word of warning. Well, a few other principles here before we jump in. One is this principle of near and far fulfillment. In Zephaniah 1, especially in the center, we're going to read about the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians in 586 BC. And God uses this near judgment to sort of foreshadow a future judgment the great tribulation, the great and terrible day of Yahweh when God's going to wipe it all out. So we find this principle of near and far fulfillment. The, the book ends of chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, and, and the end, verses 15 through 18, that we kind of read already, that described the great tribulation at the end times. That has not happened yet. Verses 4 through 13, the center of the chapter, describe the destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 BC. It's very specific. It describes the fall of Judah, the execution of Josiah's sons, things that have already happened. And this mixing of near and far fulfillment is actually very common in the Old Testament uh, in regards to a number of different topics. One clear example is Jesus is coming. In one paragraph, Isaiah can mix the first coming of Jesus in his humility, and the second coming of Jesus in his judgment. Another clear example is found in the book of Joel. Austin showed us that God takes a a near judgment concerning locusts, and he uses it to look forward to the great day of judgment, when in Revelation chapter 9, the great tribulation, locusts are released from the abyss to judge mankind. So the day of Yahweh in its ultimate sense, refers to the great tribulation, the end of time. The day of Yahweh is that Old Testament description of what we read in Revelation 6 through 19. And we know this is the case because the description of this day and of the great tribulation are the same. So much so that Joel tells us in Joel 2, 2, that the day of Yahweh is a time of wrath like has never been before, nor will be again after it through all the years 
of all generations. That's the exact same thing that Jesus tells us about the Great Tribulation in Matthew 24, Daniel 12, the same thing, all describing the same day. So the day of Yahweh is the future day of God's wrath, the day of God's vindication, and it will not be completely fulfilled until Jesus comes back. But that great day when God wipes the earth clean is foreshadowed by other judgments like the destruction of Jerusalem. So much so that in Lamentations 2, 21, Jeremiah refers to the destruction of Jerusalem as the day of Yahweh's anger. But the important concept to understand here is that we're not to understand then that the day of Yahweh is fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem. Rather, the Jews were supposed to see that these near judgments should remind them that a greater day of wrath was coming upon the whole earth. In other words, the destruction of Jerusalem should give us a taste of what's to come. The burning of Jerusalem is a warning that Yahweh's hellfire is coming. One final phrase from verse 1. Notice that it literally reads that the word of Yahweh came to Zephaniah. As a few others have noted in this series, the word came generally refers to a person coming. And that's because the messenger of Yahweh in the Old Testament is the pre-incarnate Christ. The word of Yahweh, as John 1 tells us, is Jesus. So we don't know how the word came to Zephaniah, whether in a burning bush like he did to Moses or in a vision like to Isaiah. But we know the who. This is Jesus' message to believers. Zephaniah is Jesus' message. And that's helpful to remember because sometimes we think of Jesus as all compassion and love. But Jesus is the one with eyes like fire, with the sword coming out of his mouth. Jesus is the one who died on the cross to satisfy his own holiness, to satisfy his own righteousness. But I should also point out that The fact that Yahweh warns us of God's wrath is in itself a mercy. There there are those that read Zephaniah chapter 1 and view it as an expression only of God's justice and his wrath and his anger. But the fact that a word from Yahweh comes to us is in and of itself an expression of the grace and mercy of God. No word from Yahweh would be the true judgment. The fact that God warns us is a mercy. It reveals God's heart of love who does not wish for the death of the wicked. He takes no pleasure in it, which is why he warns. When you scream at a child to get out of the street so it doesn't get killed by an oncoming car, that is a mercy. That is an expression of grace. It's like Jonah's message to the Ninevites. Some hear, wow, I mean, it's just all judgment. Forty days and you're all going to be destroyed. But you know what? Even the wicked king of Nineveh understood. Why is God giving us 40 days of warning? If not because there's a chance that we can escape it. The warning is an an expression of grace. That brings us to verse 2 as a reminder. 
we're testing your concentration here. I'm not sure how many of you are passing the test. I'm going to stick this up just in case our experts in the sound booth decide to make a change here. Okay, so verse 2, we're looking at five characteristics of Yahweh's day. And the first is to consider what kind of judgment is coming. Verse 2 says, I will completely end all things from the face of the ground, declares Yahweh. This is not hyperbole as some presume. There is no exaggeration here. In in Hebrew, this is written as strongly as it can be. Mankind is so wicked, this creation is so infected by sin that God is going to burn it all down. As 2 Peter 3 explains, God's going to melt down the very elements of this creation and remake it all. Nothing is going to be left. It's a complete and total destruction of everything. And just so we understand that all means all, verse 3, I will end man and beast, I will end the birds of the sky, the fish of the sea, and the ruins along with the wicked, and I will cut off man from the face of the ground, declares Yahweh. As I mentioned, man, the last creation of Genesis 1, is the first destroyed on Yahweh's day. It's a perfect chiasm. Because man is the cause of all the problems. It's our sin that brings about the destruction of this world. Our sin is what causes this entire creation to groan. And if you glean nothing else from Zephaniah chapter 1, learn this. Learn how terrible your sin must be that it angers God to this degree. That he decides to just burn it all down. Notice that, that phrase there. That God is going to wipe away even the ruins along with the wicked. You say, why why the ruins? Well, normally when you think of destruction, like the destruction of a city, after you destroy a city, what's left? The ruins of the city, but not this time. This time God's wiping it all out. There will be nothing left. Absolutely nothing. And to make sure we understand how certain this is, two times, end of verse 2 and 3, declares Yahweh. So what kind of judgment is coming? It's universal judgment. There is no escape. No one will survive. God is going to make an utter end to everyone and everything. So consider this. But in particular, notice verse 4. God is coming for his people. Verse 4, so I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Interesting, God goes from talk of global destruction to the judgment of Jerusalem. Why? Well, two things. We already talked about this idea of near and far judgment, right? Very soon, in just a handful of years, there would be a day of Yahweh's wrath when Jerusalem was destroyed, when the king's sons were slaughtered. But that judgment serves as a vivid example, as a reminder to us that global wrath is coming upon everyone. Global wrath is coming. And it's coming to us, to this world, not just in the time of Zephaniah. This is written for us. It's true that Zephaniah prophesied before the destruction of Jerusalem, but but his book is written for us and those who lived after that destruction. It's warning us. Its message is clear. Look to Jerusalem. Look to the destruction of Jerusalem. Something much worse is coming. But there's a second reason God starts his description of judgment with Jerusalem. And that's the biblical principle that we find in 1 Peter 4, 17, that judgment begins with who? 
Judgment begins with the household of God, with the people of God. Those most responsible are those who have God's word, who have God's law, who have God's light. Right? It's Capernaum that's judged with a greater judgment than Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? Because they had Jesus and they rejected him. That's why God begins stretching out his hand against Jerusalem. Surely Israel expected God to extend his hand against the nations, against Israel's enemies. God's outstretched arm is what we see in Exodus 15 as God destroyed Pharaoh's army. But now he stretches out his hand against his own. And that should terrify us. Because of all the people in the history of this world, we here at Grace Church know the truth. We have the light of the gospel preached to us every week so faithfully. And if we do not repent, we will be the first to receive God's wrath. Hebrews 10, if you know Jesus, you know about his cross and his resurrection on the third day, and you reject him, it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He is a consuming fire. God says, the one who rejects my son, leave him to me. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The Lord will judge his people. Back to Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 4. Zephaniah describes the idolatry of Judah. I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place and the names of the idolatrous priests along with the priests. Verse 5, those who worship on the housetops, the host of heaven, those who worship and swear to Yahweh and yet swear to Milcom. Those who have turned back from following Yahweh, those who have not sought Yahweh nor inquired of him. God is going to cleanse his people from their idolatry. He mentions Baal worship in verse 5, astral worshipers in verse, uh, forgive me, Baal worshipers in verse 4, astral worshipers in verse 5, atheists in verse 6. When Josiah makes his reforms in 2 Kings 23, he describes Baal worship, Asherah worship, Shamash, the Assyrian astral gods, Molech. Israel prayed to Baal for prosperity. Worship to Baal, we see throughout scriptures, it's a really abhorrent, disgusting thing. It was believed that if Baal saw humans fornicating here on earth, that he would be enticed to fulfill his conjugal responsibilities to his consort. A knot, and that he would rain down his seed upon the earth and bring prosperity. I mean, the fact that the people of God are involved in this type of idolatry is just so disgusting. You know, Molech, who demanded child sacrifice. And God hates this idolatry and hates especially when his people mix that idolatry with the worship of him. We call that syncretism. Syncretism is trying to blend to combine the worship of Yahweh with the worship of false gods. Notice in verse 5 that they swore to Yahweh and to Milcom. Milcom is either a Hebrew spelling of Molech or, if translated, another reference to Baal as their king. Either way, the point is that Yahweh does not accept synchronistic worship. You cannot worship Yahweh and something else because Yahweh is a jealous God. He demands absolute allegiance total loyalty because he's the only God that exists. It's evil for anything else to be worshipped. And this is just as true today. Christ is our only Savior. And yet we still profane his worship with idol worship. 
Sure, the names of our gods are much more sophisticated today. Abortion is our molech. The horoscope, our astral worship. Prosperity gospel is our Baal. We've come up with with different ways to worship these same gods, but our idolatrous hearts are still the same, which is why God says he's going to wipe it all out. So consider, think, contemplate. God's judgment will be an absolute total destruction of every sinner. Hellfire will consume all who do not repent. Second characteristic, consider what kind of judge will be judging. Verse 7, be silent before Lord Yahweh. Be silent is a Hebrew interjection that could just be translated, shh, be quiet, stop. Do you realize who is coming to judge? It is Lord Yahweh, the omnipotent sovereign, the immutable invictus, creator and judge, holy, righteous, jealous. And the day of vengeance is in his heart. He's the one coming in the fury of his anger. Verse 7, the day of Yahweh is near. Yahweh has prepared sacrifice. He set apart his guests. Interesting, you say, well, wait, isn't sacrifice a, a good thing? I mean, animal sacrifices were, were to placate God's wrath on behalf of his people, weren't they? Well, that's where we see another unexpected inversion. Notice verse 8. Then it will be on the day of Yahweh's sacrifice that I will punish the princes, the king's sons. Josiah's sons were wicked. They were to be judged. But the irony here is that the sacrifice, animal sacrifice, was supposed to be the vehicle of Israel's redemption. And now it's the vehicle of their condemnation. Yahweh has called for a sacrifice. Certainly Judas thinking the sacrifice is on their behalf. But they are the ones being sacrificed. They're the ones being slaughtered on this day. They're... In the context of of this time period, Judah's crying out, Oh man, I wish the day of Yahweh would come so he could judge the world and make things right. And God says, don't pray for my day. I'm not coming for your enemies, I'm coming for you. Amos 5 says, Woe to you who desire the day of Yahweh. Why would you want the day of Yahweh? It is darkness and not light. So let me add a note of application. I I can imagine for some of you that all this talk of wrath and vengeance and the jealousy of Yahweh, some of you are thinking, I'm not sure who he's talking about. Some of you are thinking, my God is compassion and mercy and grace. Jesus is love. And let me tell you in the clearest way I know how from this text, if that's all your God is, then his name is Baal. And you have fabricated a God after your own likeness, a God that you wish existed. The only God that exists is the one described to us here in Zephaniah chapter 1. A God who is all love and no wrath is not the God of the Bible. And you need to consider who he is. Consider who it is who's coming to judge sinners. It is Lord Yahweh. He will not leave the guilty unpunished. It's impossible. It's part of the definition of his name. And verse 8 continues. All those who clothe themselves with foreign garments. Verse 9, I will punish on that day all who leap on the temple threshold, who fill the house of their Lord with violence and deceit. Apparently they're wearing foreign garments in disobedience to Mosaic law, which required the Israelites to wear certain fabrics, blue tassels, etc. But they wanted to be like the nation's. 
And they went to great lengths to be like the nations. Verse 9, they, they even leapt over the temple threshold. You say, what is that all about? Well, it's probably related to 1 Samuel 5. You remember in 1 Samuel 5 that the ark was captured by the Philistines and placed in Dagon's temple. And what does Yahweh do to Dagon's idol? He knocks it over, the head breaks off, and rolls to the threshold of the temple. And the, the, the priests who worshipped Dagon had to jump over the head, the decapitated head of their God to get into the temple. And 1 Samuel 5, 5 says this, This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The point is this, the people of Israel are painstakingly following pagan worship practices to the T, and they're running rampant through Yahweh's house like a bull in a china shop. They obeyed the legalistic superstitions of a false god, but refused to obey Yahweh. The phrase, they fill the house of their Lord with violence, could go two ways. Lord, capital L, Lord, lowercase l. Could be violence in Yahweh's temple. Could also be that their Lord is not Yahweh, but their false God. They were filling this pagan temple with goods obtained by violence and deceit. Either way, the issue, again, is syncretism, right? Their false worship, their idol worship had made any worship of Yahweh abhorrent to him. Jeremiah 7, which is written in the same time period, this is what God says. Will you steal and murder and commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? The same idolatry Jesus condemns in the Gospels. You cannot worship Yahweh with one foot in the world. So consider, think about who's coming in judgment. It's Yahweh. He's a jealous God, and he demands your absolute allegiance. Verse 10, it'll be in that day, declares Yahweh, that there will be a sound of a cry from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a great destruction from the hills. A little bit of debate about where these places are, the fish gate, the second quarter. The the point is obvious, though, that judgment is now within the walls of Jerusalem. God's judgment is not out among the nations. It's not at the border of Israel. God's wrath has entered Jerusalem. So, verse 11, wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the people of Canaan will be silenced. All who weigh out silver will be cut off. The mortar probably refers to the market district. The word Canaan can also refer to merchants or traders. The point is that God is directing his judgment to all the greedy commerce of Judah and Jerusalem. Babylon's going to wipe it all clean. Verse 12, it'll be at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps. That is, Lord Yahweh will miss no one. He's going to go house to house with a lamp to make sure every single person receives judgment. Which is interesting in light of what Zephaniah said in verses 2 and 3. In verses 2 and 3, Yahweh's wrath is poured out like fire against all creation. Universal. It's indiscriminate. But But now God speaks of his judgment as specific, targeted toward the individual. The text continues, I will punish the men who are stagnant in spirit, who say in their hearts, Yahweh will not do good or evil. Stagnant in spirit uh, translates a Hebrew metaphor of thickening on their dregs. It's this imagery of fermented wine. And if you let it sit too long, it would get stagnant, would be ruined. 
just like Israel had become, complacent, stagnant, indifferent toward Yahweh. Moses had predicted this, Deuteronomy 8. Moses said that that Yahweh was going to bless Israel, and then Israel would what? They would forget God. So Israel is now living like practical atheists. They say, Yahweh's not going to do anything. He's not going to do good or evil. That is, he won't bless us if we obey. He won't curse us if we do evil. Maybe he exists, but he doesn't care. He's not going to do anything. Zephaniah says, wrong. Everything we sow, we will reap. God cannot be mocked. And this is what the day of Yahweh is all about. The day of Yahweh is the day of Yahweh's vindication. All questions of theodicy will be resolved on this day. All sin will be judged, and Yahweh will be shown to be right in everything. Another inversion, verse 13, will be that their wealth will become spoiled, their houses desolate. Indeed, they will build houses, but not inhabit them, and plant vineyards, but not drink their wine. This, again, is another reversal, another inversion. God is now kicking Israel out of the land because this is the exact opposite of what Moses says in Deuteronomy 6 in the conquest. Moses promised the Israelites, you will inhabit houses you did not build and drink wine from vineyards you did not plant. And now the same thing is happening, but to the Babylonians who are going to come in and dwell in Israelite houses. God's blessing upon his people is being taken away as they're exiled. There's no light, there's no blessing for Israel on this day. But we're Yahweh's people. It's not a claim that will help on the day of Yahweh. Just like the claims, but I went to church. I was a member of Grace Church. Those claims will get you nowhere in hell. On the day of Yahweh's wrath, consider this. The one who's coming to judge is Lord Yahweh. He knows your heart. He knows your secrets. He sees all. If he says he will judge all, then all will be judged. This is Yahweh we're talking about. Psalm 90, Moses affirms that no one fears Yahweh as much as they should. No one fears Yahweh as much as they would if they knew who Yahweh really was. That is, if you really knew who Yahweh was, you would be much more afraid than you are right now. Third characteristic of Yahweh's day, consider when it is coming. It's coming soon, verse 14, near is the day of Yahweh, near and coming very quickly. You say, it's been 2,500 years, what do you mean near? Well, read Second Peter 3, God is patient. A thousand years is like a day to him, but it is on its way, and think of this. In the same way in which God destroyed Jerusalem just a few years after this prophecy as a foreshadowing of his great day, you could die in a fiery car crash tonight. Whether tonight or in 30 years, judgment is on its way. It's coming soon. It's close and it's terrible. Second half of 14, oh, the sound of the day of Yahweh. In it, the mighty man cries bitterly. That phrase, mighty man cries out bitterly, is is difficult to translate. I think part of the issue is that we're unaccustomed to the reality of war. We've never lived in a city that was attacked. We've never heard the terrifying screams of the battle cry. But just, just try to imagine what it would be like for the women and the children hidden at home if they hear the sound of their husband bitterly crying out in defeat as he is slain by the enemy. If the mighty warrior is crying out bitterly, death is at your door. 
Verse 15, a day of fury is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and thick darkness, a day of clouds and dense gloom, a day of trumpet and loud shouting. In this section, the word day occurs seven times. In Hebrew, each stanza contains exactly seven syllables. It is a perfect description of the fury of God's wrath to come. It's odd to speak of words of judgment as beautiful, but the the poetry is so haunting here, so carefully crafted, even Mozart wrote a requiem to it, as many others have. The day of Yahweh is all wrath for sinners. It's all gloom, all destruction, all darkness, all death. It's against, verse 16, fortified cities, the high towers. There's no place to hide. No fortress will protect you. Yahweh is coming. Who's going to protect you from the Almighty? So consider judgment is near. Consider also a fourth characteristic. Consider what kind of person will be judged. Who will be judged on Yahweh's day? Answer, every single sinner. Not one will escape. Verse 17, I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind God shifts to the first person, making it more vivid. Yahweh is the one who says, I will bring this distress. Because the idea is binding them up and blinding them so that they cannot see, so that there is no escape. And why is it? Who is it that's going to receive this judgment? Second half of 17. Because they have sinned against Yahweh. Judgment is coming for every sinner. If you've lied, if you've hated, if you've broken even one of God's law, he's coming for you in judgment. Their blood will be poured out like dust, he says, and their flesh like dung. It's this graphic battlefield imagery. No one will escape. There will not even be anyone to clean up. God says their flesh will be scattered about the ground like dung. Corpses strewn from here to there with no one to bury them because everyone will be dead. Because they've all sinned against Yahweh. So learn how much God hates your sin. Consider this judgment. It applies to every single sinner. No one escapes. Verse 18, neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them. You can't buy someone else's army to protect you. Who would you hire to stand against Almighty God? There's no way out. There's no fine print. In the great tribulation, verse 18, on the day of the fury of Yahweh, all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete destruction, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. Jealous is the name of Yahweh. He often compares himself to a jealous husband, which is a wonderful comfort for the wife who is faithful. But mankind is an adulterous whore who has kindled Yahweh's anger for thousands and thousands of years. And very soon the day will come where he unleashes the fury of that anger. And God's rampage of destruction will make a terrifying end to every inhabitant on the face of the earth. No one will stand up to him on that day. He's just. He must eradicate evil from this world. His holy fire will purify this world of sin. It's coming. Do you believe that? The wrath of God is coming. And so the question for us tonight, after seeing this description, is what are we to do 
in light of this day. And I just want to kind of sneak into chapter 2 a few verses here and get just a little bit of taste of where this book is heading and some of the good news. I thought it was a little bit unkind since the original audience was going to get to the good news of chapter 3 in about two minutes. It seemed unfair to make you wait two weeks. So if Yahweh is a judge and he's going to burn it all down, we see in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2 a fifth characteristic of Yahweh's day, and that is that you can be hidden from it. Chapter 2, verse 1, what you can do to escape. Zephaniah says, gather yourselves together. Indeed, gather, consider, think. It's like Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 13, gather together the loose parts of your mind. Prepare yourselves to do something, to act. Says, consider, O nation, without shame. Instead of God calling Judah his people, he calls them a nation. You've heard the term goyim to refer to Gentiles, to the nations. That's the word used here. So what should this nation without shame do? Verse 2, before this decree takes effect and the day passes like the chaff, before the burning anger of Yahweh comes upon you, before the day of Yahweh's anger comes upon you. The day is coming. As quickly as the chaff is driven away by the wind. So, So what should you do? Flee from Yahweh's wrath. It's decreed. It will happen. You can't stop it from happening. The great tribulation is coming. Hell is coming. But you can do something before it arrives. God's telling you ahead of time for a reason. So flee. Flee God's wrath. Run from it. But that's the interesting thing about the person who's properly read Zephaniah chapter 1. And that is this. It's impossible to flee from his wrath. Where would you go? Yahweh's day is inevitable, right? No one can withstand the wrath of the Almighty. There's no use looking for help. Who could provide you with refuge from omnipotent wrath? Flee? Where would you flee from Yahweh's wrath? Is there a place you can go away from him? That's the point. God has left us with no other option for salvation except himself. To flee from Yahweh, you must flee to Yahweh. Verse 3, seek Yahweh. Seek Yahweh because the only one strong enough to provide you refuge from Yahweh's omnipotent wrath is Yahweh himself. Don't try to sneak out of it. Don't try to find a way around him. Just go to him. Seek him. If his wrath is coming on men because they have not sought Yahweh, as Zephaniah 1.6 said, then the only solution is to seek him. And not externally. Going to the temple is not enough. He doesn't say offer more sacrifices, give more tithes. He says seek Yahweh, give him your whole allegiance. Beg him for mercy. Seek him desperately. You will burn in the fury of God's wrath if you don't. This is urgent. Seek him until you find him. Genuine seeking perseveres until its object is found. And not just with an outward reform, right? Josiah reformed the nation. He destroyed the physical idols in the land. They mourned their sin. They cried. But you could be sorrowful over sin and still be lost. You need to repent. Repent is abandoning your sin and seeking refuge in God's righteousness. The text says, all you humble of the earth who have worked his 
justice, seek righteousness, seek humility, change, repent, let go of your sin and seek God. The wrath of God is presented as this means to move us to God and to abandon our sin. Matthew Henry famously said of this passage, God is not trying to frighten them out of their wits. He's trying to frighten them out of their sins. He's looking for repentance, for them to stop sinning and start acting in righteousness. And that's why the text says that this all starts with being humble. This is for the humble of the earth. Because humility is knowing that we are nothing, that we are not righteous, that we have nothing to offer God, and we need him. It's the publican who can't even lift his head up to heaven and just pleads with God, have mercy on me. Zephaniah ends this section with these words, perhaps you will be hidden in the day of Yahweh's anger. Perhaps. Perhaps is not a promise, but it's a chance worth taking because this is your only option of survival. Seek Yahweh. Seek Yahweh and live. That's God's desire, that you be raptured out of his wrath. So I pray for us tonight. If you do not know Yahweh, if you do not know Christ tonight, seek him. His omnipotent wrath against our sin is inevitable and it is unbearable. Even an eternity in hell will not be enough to pay for your sins. Even if you stop sinning right now, that would not be enough because you'd still have to go to hell and spend an eternity paying for your past sins. Fear Yahweh's wrath and run to him. And the more we understand this chapter, the more we see how good the news of Jesus Christ is. Right? Because if every sinner is going to receive God's wrath, well then to save us, God would need to make us perfectly righteous. He would need to remove all of our sins so that we would no longer be sinners. And that's exactly what the gospel is. That God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become what? No longer sinners, but righteous in his sight. The omnipotent Son of God absorbed the omnipotent wrath of the Father to make us righteous. On the cross, Jesus endured the wrath of Yahweh. He lived the day of Yahweh for us. So let us seek refuge in him. Seek his righteousness, hunger and thirst for it. Because if you cast yourself on Jesus, you will be saved. And the best news is that in Jesus, we see that the salvation of God is not a perhaps, not a maybe. His salvation is certain. The promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And he saves us not just from the destruction of all things. He saves us for the new coming kingdom that he's making. So that we can praise him and worship him forever. And that again is why Zephaniah 1 and 2 are so important. Because we praise him best when we understand best what he's done. The love of God is shallow and meaningless without the full fury of God's vengeance in view. It is not until we understand what God has saved us from that we fully appreciate his mercy. It is he who has been saved from much that loves much. So if you are in Jesus tonight, Praise the Lord. Praise God. Be thankful. You have been rescued from Zephaniah chapter 1. And you've been saved for Zephaniah 3. Let me just read one verse to end our time. 
Zephaniah 3. Yahweh your God will be in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will be joyful over you with gladness. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with joyful singing. What a beautiful promise for those who have escaped Yahweh's wrath. Let's pray. Father, it's hard to imagine that we who deserve, who rightly deserve your wrath, that you will rejoice over us with singing. It speaks to us so much of what Jesus has done for us in cleansing us and forgiving us of all our unrighteousness. And we thank you, we praise you, that in your perfect plan of redemption, You have sent your son to endure your wrath on our behalf. Help us to live for you. Help us to worship you for all that you've done and all that you are. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. As always, our prayer room is open to my right, to your left. If we can serve you in any way, if you need to flee from Yahweh's wrath tonight, please do so. We'd love to pray with you. Dismiss. Good night.